Section 1 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1913-1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, Woodrow Wilson, December 2nd, 1913. Gentlemen of the Congress, in pursuance of my constitutional duty to give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, I take the liberty of addressing you on several matters which ought, as it seems to me, particularly to engage the attention of your honorable bodies as of all who study the welfare and progress of the nation. I shall ask your indulgence if I venture to depart in some degree from the usual custom of setting before you in formal review the many matters which have engaged the attention and called for the action of the several departments of the government, or which look to them for early treatment in the future, because the list is long, very long and would suffer in the abbreviation to which I should have to subject it. I shall submit to you the reports of the heads of the several departments in which these subjects are set forth in careful detail, and beg that they may receive the thoughtful attention of your committees and of all members of the Congress who may have the leisure to study them. Their obvious importance as constituting the very substance of the business of the government, makes comment and emphasis on my part unnecessary. The country, I am thankful to say, is at peace with all the world, and many happy manifestations multiply about us of a growing cordiality and sense of community of interest among the nations, foreshadowing an age of settled peace and goodwill. More and more readily each decade do the nations manifest their willingness to bind themselves by solemn treaty to the processes of peace, the processes of frankness and fair concession. So far, the United States has stood at the front of such negotiations. She will, I earnestly hope and confidently believe, give fresh proof of her sincere adherence to the cause of international friendship by ratifying the several treaties of arbitration awaiting renewal by the Senate. In addition to these, it has been the privilege of the Department of State to gain the assent, in principle, of no less than 31 nations, representing four-fifths of the population of the world, to the negotiation of treaties by which it shall be agreed that whenever differences of interest or of policy arise which cannot be resolved by the ordinary processes of diplomacy, they shall be publicly analyzed, discussed, and reported upon by a tribunal chosen by the parties before either nation determines its course of action. There is only one possible standard by which to determine controversies between the United States and other nations, and that is compounded of these two elements, our own honor 
and our obligations to the peace of the world. A test so compounded ought easily to be made to govern both the establishment of new treaty obligations and the interpretation of those already assumed. There is but one cloud upon our horizon. That has shown itself to the south of us and hangs over Mexico. There can be no certain prospect of peace in America until General Huerta has surrendered his usurped authority in Mexico, until it is understood on all hands, indeed, that such pretended governments will not be countenanced nor dealt with by the government of the United States. We are the friends of constitutional government in America. We are more than its friends. We are its champions. Because in no other way can our neighbors, to whom we would wish in every way to make proof of our friendship, work out their own development in peace and liberty. Mexico has no government. The attempt to maintain one at the city of Mexico has broken down, and a mere military despotism has been set up which has hardly more than the semblance of national authority. It originated in the usurpation of Victoriano Huerta, who, after a brief attempt to play the part of constitutional president, has at last cast aside even the pretense of legal right and declared himself dictator. As a consequence, a condition of affairs now exists in Mexico which has made it doubtful whether even the most elementary and fundamental rights, either of her own people or of the citizens of other countries resident within her territory, can long be successfully safeguarded, and which threatens, if long continued, to imperil the interests of peace, order, and tolerable life in the lands immediately to the south of us. Even if the usurper had succeeded in his purposes, in despite of the constitution of the republic and the rights of its people, he would have set up nothing but a precarious and hateful power, which could have lasted but a little while, and whose eventual downfall would have left the country in a more deplorable condition than ever. But he has not succeeded. He has forfeited the respect and the moral support even of those who were at one time willing to see him succeed. Little by little, he has been completely isolated. By a little every day, his power and prestige are crumbling, and the collapse is not far away. We shall not, I believe, be obliged to alter our policy of watchful waiting. And then, when the end comes, we shall hope to see constitutional order restored in distressed Mexico by the concert and energy of such of her leaders as prefer the liberty of their people to their own ambitions. I turn to matters of domestic concern. You already have under consideration a bill for the reform of our system of banking and currency for which the country waits with impatience, 
as for something fundamental to its whole business life and necessary to set credit free from arbitrary and artificial restraints. I need not say how earnestly I hope for its early enactment into law. I take leave to beg that the whole energy and attention of the Senate be concentrated upon it till the matter is successfully disposed of. And yet I feel that the request is not needed, that the members of that great house need no urging in this service to the country. I present to you, in addition, the urgent necessity that special provision be made also for facilitating the credits needed by the farmers of the country. The pending currency bill does the farmers a great service. It puts them upon an equal footing with other businessmen and masters of enterprise, as it should, and upon its passage they will find themselves quit of many of the difficulties which now hamper them in the field of credit. The farmers, of course, ask and should be given no special privilege, such as extending to them the credit of the government itself. What they need and should obtain is legislation which will make their own abundant and substantial credit resources available as a foundation for joint, concerted, local action in their own behalf in getting the capital they must use. It is to this we should now address ourselves. It has, singularly enough, come to pass that we have allowed the industry of our farms to lag behind the other activities of the country in its development. I need not stop to tell you how fundamental to the life of the nation is the production of its food. Our thoughts may ordinarily be concentrated upon the cities and the hives of industry, upon the cries of the crowded marketplace and the clangor of the factory, but it is from the quiet interspaces of the open valleys and the free hillsides that we draw the sources of life and of prosperity, from the farm and the ranch, from the forest and the mine. Without these, every street would be silent, every office deserted, every factory fallen into disrepair. And yet the farmer does not stand upon the same footing with the forester and the miner in the market of credit. He is the servant of the seasons. Nature determines how long he must wait for his crops and will not be hurried in her processes. He may give his note, but the season of its maturity depends upon the season when his crop matures, lies at the gates of the market where his products are sold, and the security he gives is of a character not known in the broker's office, or as familiarly as it might be on the counter of the banker. The agricultural department of the government is seeking to assist as never before to make farming an efficient business, of wide cooperative effort in quick touch with the markets for foodstuffs. The farmers and the government will henceforth work together as real partners in this field, 
where we now begin to see our way very clearly and where many intelligent plans are already being put into execution. The Treasury of the United States has, by a timely and well-considered distribution of its deposits, facilitated the moving of the crops in the present season and prevented the scarcity of available funds too often experienced at such times. But we must not allow ourselves to depend upon extraordinary expedients. We must add the means by which the farmer may make his credit constantly and easily available and command, when he will, the capital by which to support and expand his business. We lag behind many other great countries of the modern world in attempting to do this. Systems of rural credit have been studied and developed on the other side of the water, while we left our farmers to shift for themselves in the ordinary money market. You have but to look about you in any rural district to see the result, the handicap and embarrassment which have been put upon those who produce our food. Conscious of this backwardness and neglect on our part, the Congress recently authorized the creation of a special commission to study the various systems of rural credit which have been put into operation in Europe, and this commission is already prepared to report. Its report ought to make it easier for us to determine what methods will be best suited to our own farmers. I hope and believe that the committees of the Senate and House will address themselves to this matter with the most fruitful results, and I believe that the studies and recently formed plans of the Department of Agriculture may be made to serve them very greatly in their work of framing appropriate and adequate legislation. It would be indiscreet and presumptuous in anyone to dogmatize upon so great and many-sided a question. But I feel confident that common counsel will produce the results we must all desire. Turn from the farm to the world of business which centers in the city and in the factory, and I think that all thoughtful observers will agree that the immediate service we owe the business communities of the country is to prevent private monopoly more effectually than it has yet been prevented. I think it will be easily agreed that we should let the Sherman antitrust law stand, unaltered as it is, with its debatable ground about it, but that we should as much as possible reduce the area of that debatable ground by further and more explicit legislation and should also supplement that great act by legislation which will not only clarify it, but also facilitate its administration and make it fairer to all concerned. No doubt we shall all wish, and the country will expect, this to be the central subject of our deliberations during the present session. But it is a subject so many-sided and so deserving of careful and discriminating discussion, 
that I shall take the liberty of addressing you upon it in a special message at a later date than this. It is of capital importance that the businessmen of this country should be relieved of all uncertainties of law with regard to their enterprises and investments, and a clear path indicated which they can travel without anxiety. It is as important that they should be relieved of embarrassment and set free to prosper as that private monopoly should be destroyed. The ways of action should be thrown wide open. I turn to a subject which I hope can be handled promptly and without serious controversy of any kind. I mean the method of selecting nominees for the presidency of the United States. I feel confident that I do not misinterpret the wishes or the expectations of the country when I urge the prompt enactment of legislation which will provide for primary elections throughout the country, at which the voters of the several parties may choose their nominees for the presidency without the intervention of nominating conventions. I venture the suggestion that this legislation should provide for the retention of party conventions, but only for the purpose of declaring and accepting the verdict of the primaries and formulating the platforms of the parties. And I suggest that these conventions should consist not of delegates chosen for this single purpose, but of the nominees for Congress, the nominees for vacant seats in the Senate of the United States, the senators whose terms have not yet closed, the national committees, and the candidates for the presidency themselves in order that platforms may be framed by those responsible to the people for carrying them into effect. These are all matters of vital domestic concern, and besides them, outside the charmed circle of our own national life in which our affections command us, as well as our consciences, there stand out our obligations toward our territories overseas. Here we are trustees. Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines are ours indeed, but not ours to do what we please with. Such territories, once regarded as mere possessions, are no longer to be selfishly exploited. They are part of the domain of public conscience and of serviceable and enlightened statesmanship. We must administer them for the people who live in them, and with the same sense of responsibility to them as toward our own people in our domestic affairs. No doubt we shall successfully enough bind Puerto Rico and the Hawaiian Islands to ourselves by ties of justice and interest and affection. But the performance of our duty toward the Philippines is a more difficult and debatable matter. We can satisfy the obligations of generous justice toward the people of Puerto Rico by giving them the ample and familiar rights and privileges accorded our own citizens in our own territories. 
and our obligations toward the people of Hawaii by perfecting the provisions for self-government already granted them. But in the Philippines, we must go further. We must hold steadily in view their ultimate independence, and we must move toward the time of that independence as steadily as the way can be cleared and the foundations thoughtfully and permanently laid. Acting under the authority conferred upon the President by Congress, I have already accorded the people of the islands a majority in both houses of their legislative body by appointing five instead of four Native citizens to the membership of the Commission. I believe that in this way we shall make proof of their capacity in council and their sense of responsibility in the exercise of political power, and that the success of this step will be sure to clear our view for the steps which are to follow. Step by step, we should extend and perfect the system of self-government in the islands, making test of them and modifying them as experience discloses their successes and their failures that we should, more and more, put under the control of the native citizens of the archipelago the essential instruments of their life, their local instrumentalities of government, their schools, all the common interests of their communities, and so, by counsel and experience, set up a government which all the world will see to be suitable to a people whose affairs are under their own control. And last, I hope and believe we are beginning to gain the confidence of the Filipino peoples. By their counsel and experience, rather than by our own, we shall learn how best to serve them and how soon it will be possible and wise to withdraw our supervision. Let us once find the path and set out with firm and confident tread upon it, and we shall not wander from it or linger upon it. A duty faces us with regard to Alaska, which seems to me very pressing and very imperative. Perhaps I should say a double duty, for it concerns both the political and the material development of the territory. The people of Alaska should be given the full territorial form of government, and Alaska as a storehouse should be unlocked. One key to it is a system of railways. These the government should itself build and administer, and the ports and terminals it should itself control in the interest of all who wish to use them for the service and development of the country and its people. But the construction of railways is only the first step, is only thrusting in the key to the storehouse and throwing back the lock and opening the door. How the tempting resources of the country are to be exploited is another matter, to which I shall take the liberty of, from time to time, calling your attention for it is a policy which must be worked out by well-considered stages, not upon theory, but upon lines of practical expediency. 
it is part of our general problem of conservation. We have a freer hand in working out the problem in Alaska than in the states of the Union, and yet the principle and object are the same wherever we touch it. We must use the resources of the country, not lock them up. There need be no conflict or jealousy as between state and federal authorities, for there can be no essential difference of purpose between them. The resources in question must be used, but not destroyed or wasted, used but not monopolized upon any narrow idea of individual rights as against the abiding interests of communities. That a policy can be worked out by conference and concession which will release these resources and yet not jeopardize or dissipate them, I, for one, have no doubt. And it can be done on lines of regulation which need be no less acceptable to the people and governments of the states concerned than to the people and government of the nation at large whose heritage these resources are. We must bend our counsels to this end. A common purpose ought to make agreement easy. Three or four matters of special importance and significance I beg that you will permit me to mention in closing. Our Bureau of Mines ought to be equipped and empowered to render even more effectual service than it renders now in improving the conditions of mine labor and making the mines more economically productive as well as more safe. This is an all-important part of the work of conservation, and the conservation of human life and energy lies even nearer to our interests than the preservation from waste of our material resources. We owe it in mere justice to the railway employees of the country to provide for them a fair and effective Employers' Liability Act and a law that we can stand by in this matter will be no less to the advantage of those who administer the railroads of the country than to the advantage of those whom they employ. The experience of a large number of the states abundantly proves that. We ought to devote ourselves to meeting pressing demands of plain justice like this as earnestly as to the accomplishment of political and economic reforms. Social justice comes first. Law is the machinery for its realization and is vital only as it expresses and embodies it. An international congress for the discussion of all questions that affect safety at sea is now sitting in London at the suggestion of our own government. So soon as the conclusions of that Congress can be learned and considered, we ought to address ourselves, among other things, to the prompt alleviation of the very unsafe, unjust, and burdensome conditions which now surround the employment of sailors and render it extremely difficult to obtain the services of spirited and competent men such as every ship needs, if it is to be safely handled and brought to port.
may I not express the very real pleasure I have experienced in cooperating with this Congress and sharing with it the labors of common service to which it has devoted itself so unreservedly during the past seven months of uncomplaining concentration upon the business of legislation. Surely it is a proper and pertinent part of my report on the State of the Union to express my admiration for the diligence, the good temper, and the full comprehension of public duty which has already been manifested by both the houses, and I hope that it may not be deemed an impertinent intrusion of myself into the picture if I say with how much and how constant satisfaction I have availed myself of the privilege of putting my time and energy at their disposal alike in counsel and in action. End of section 1.